Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. So to reduce costs, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. Over 70,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash gps. netsuite.com slash gps. This is GPS, the global public square. Welcome to all of you in the United States and around the world. I'm Fareed Zakaria coming to you live from New York. Today on the program, the indictment of Donald J. Trump. I'll give you my take on this historic moment. And more than a year after Putin's invasion of Ukraine, the battle for Bakhmut rages on. What are the lessons we can draw from Putin's protracted war? And how can Ukrainians win this fight? I'll ask the military strategist who commanded many high-profile missions throughout his career, including the raid on Osama bin Laden, retired Navy four-star Admiral William McRaven. Finally, a very special conversation with one of the world's greatest film directors. I sit down with James Cameron to discuss the role of technology in movie making, his passionate work to protect the planet, and what he thinks explains the stunning global success of his movies. But first, here's my take. The news of Donald Trump's indictment has left me feeling torn. On the one hand, Trump is a walking advertisement for rich privilege. For decades, he has flouted rules, norms, and even laws as he climbed his way to the top, brazenly convinced that the usual standards didn't apply to him. His company was found guilty of tax fraud. He has been taken to court countless times for unpaid bills, and he has even stolen money from his own charities. For those of you who saw John Stewart on GPS last week, that was the gist of his passionate argument. John is certainly right that the law should not care about the popularity of a person or the political effect of an indictment, and no one can really be sure what that effect would be in the long run anyway. And yet, this case is not simply one of the law in all its impartial majesty holding somebody to account. The prosecutor, Alvin Bragg, is an elected district attorney who ran a campaign for that office boasting that he had helped sue Donald Trump over a hundred times. Even so, once elected and after looking over the evidence, he is reported to have put the case on the back burner, which triggered a storm of criticism from his Democratic base. He then reversed course and decided to pursue the case on a new basis, if reported accounts are correct, which goes something like this. Trump's offense is to have violated New York state law by falsifying business records, but the statute of limitations for that misdemeanor has expired. So Bragg's office will argue that the misdemeanor is actually tied to a felony because it violates federal election laws. But that violation is one that both Trump's and Joe Biden's justice departments looked at and decided against prosecution. That is, as many legal experts have pointed out, a novel legal theory. 
I should note that Trump denies any wrongdoing. Given the circumstances, this case has the feel of zealous prosecutors minutely examining all possibilities to find some violation of the law. This upends the notion in Anglo-Saxon law that you first have a crime and then you search for the criminal rather than first looking at the person and investigating to see if he or she has committed a crime. Many Republicans have darkly prophesied that this is a watershed moment in American history and will unleash a torrent of indictments by state prosecutors against national politicians whom they dislike. Perhaps, but they seem to have forgotten that they have been instrumental in developing this weaponization of the legal system. This week, the Wall Street Journal huffed and puffed as these columns have made clear we believe any prosecution of a former president should involve a serious offense. Really? The Wall Street Journal filled six volumes with over 3,000 pages of editorials endorsing the crazy Whitewater-related investigation of a sitting president. For those who have forgotten, Whitewater was a failed land deal in which Bill and Hillary Clinton lost money, which triggered a special prosecutor who found nothing he could use to prosecute them on that matter, but in the course of his investigation, learned that Bill Clinton had had a sexual relationship with a White House intern, which he then used to ask Clinton questions that he figured the president would answer dishonestly, leading to a perjury charge. That's a serious crime? The journal's theoretical standard is the right one, however, and the truth is Trump is likely to face just such serious charges soon. In Georgia, he could quite possibly be prosecuted for having threatened the Secretary of State in order to find the 11,000-odd votes he needed to win that state. And then there is the January 6th uprising in which he could easily be charged by federal prosecutors with an effort to overturn an election. Trying a former president breaks centuries of precedent. But he should be tried if the offenses themselves are likewise precedent-shattering, and those election-related ones are. Paying hush money to cover up an affair, however, is just not at that level. And I worry that the far more serious cases against Trump will get lumped together with the Stormy Daniels affair as just more efforts to find something to bring Trump down. The rule of law is not pursued simply to punish people, but to create a system of self-government that is widely viewed as legitimate and fair. The hush money case will captivate the country. And if the rumors about the charges facing him are true, Trump is probably guilty. But will it create more or less faith in our judicial system and our democratic system? That is the worry that leads me to conclude that this is a case of trying the right man for the wrong crime. And let's get started. The battle for eastern Ukraine was incredibly intense and bloody this week as Russia hammered its neighbor with all manner of munitions. In Bakhmut, the most hotly contested city in the region, Wagner mercenaries fighting on behalf of Moscow raised the Wagner, not Russian, flag near the center of the city. Where does the war go from here? Let me bring in my guest today, retired Admiral William McRaven. Before he retired from the military in 2014, McRaven led Special Operations Command, 
where he oversaw the U.S. military's most elite combat units. McRaven has another terrific new book. It is called The Wisdom of the Bullfrog, Leadership Made Simple but Not Easy. Bill, welcome. Well, thanks, very Good to be with you. Um, when you look at this Bakhmut situation, um, Zelensky had to make a very important decision, which was whether to hold the line here. Uh, it, a lot of people say militarily this is not significant. Why devote so much space? He did it, and he seems to have so far resisted the Russian advance. Was it worth it, or was this a lot of Ukrainian manpower sacrificed for nothing? Yeah, I actually think it was the right decision. And again, tactically, when you, when you look at it militarily, as you know, about a month ago, his advisor said, look, we need to do an orderly withdrawal from Bakhmud because it's just not worth the cost of the, the soldiers we're losing. But I think what Zelensky looked at was, look, if we lose Bakhmud, it plays into Putin's narrative that the Russians are winning. And oh, by the way, it will, you know, it will bolster Russian morale. It will probably unduly affect Ukrainian morale. It could also affect support from Europe and the United States. So while it is just a small tactical piece of ground, I think it has huge strategic implications. I think Zelensky understood this, and, and I think it was the right call. How does Ukraine win against an enemy that, at the end of the day, is sort of many, many times bigger? Right. You know, the, the defense budget is 10 times right. bigger. The number of uh, people Putin can call in are so much larger. So I think winning looks like ensuring that Russia doesn't achieve its goals. So when when the invasion first started, of course, there were these, uh, I mean, Putin's narrative was, we're going to take Kiev, we're going to come in through Kharkiv, come up through uh, Crimea, come in through the Donbass, and we will essentially take Ukraine. Well, when that didn't work so well, then he moved the goalposts. And now it was about, well, we're going to build the land bridge from Donbass down to Crimea. And now he is struggling to do that. So if the Ukrainians can prevent the Russians from actually building that land bridge, then I, I think what it does is, is it forces Putin once again to move the goalposts. And frankly, sooner or later, failure is going to be on the radar for everybody that's watching this. So they don't have to take back the Donbass. They don't have to take back Crimea. I know they'd like to. What they've got to do is prevent the Russians from building that land bridge. And I do think they can do that. And do you think the key for the West is just give them all the weapons they can get? Yeah, can. I'm a believer that we need to give them whatever it takes to win the war, whatever it takes for them to be successful. Now, there's been a lot of discussion about, you know, do we, uh, you know, help with the Europeans and give them MiG-29s? Do we give them attack them uh, for their high Mars? You know, I trust uh, General Mark Milley, one of the finest officers I ever served with, and obviously Secretary Lloyd Austin. Both of these gentlemen have incredible combat experience. So if they are kind of withholding the aircraft and withholding the attack I got to believe there's a good reason for that. But I think in general, the administration has, has kind of managed the war pretty well. Now what they've got to do is decide whether or not they want to win the war, and all, that being the Ukrainians, helping the Ukrainians win the war. So much more to talk to you about. Uh, when we come back, I want to talk about China and the threat of a war over Taiwan with the admiral. High tensions between the U.S. and China over Taiwan were only exacerbated this week by the Taiwanese president's stopover visit in America, with Beijing accusing Washington of conniving to support Taiwan independence separatist forces. Retired Admiral William McRaven joins me again. Bill, you've heard people talk about this issue of who would win a war over the Taiwan Straits. If the Chinese were to invade, 
does the United States have the capacity to, uh, to, you know, to stall that or make that invasion fail? What do you think? Well, one, I don't believe that China's going to invade Taiwan anytime in the near future. You know, she's got enough domestic problems, and he is, of course, focused on the economy. He is focused on building up his military because I think he realizes that he's not in a position to do an amphibious assault you know, across the Taiwan Straits if the United States is going to, uh, try, to try to stop that maneuver. And, and I do think we can, uh, we can prevent the Chinese from crossing the straits, but it's going to come at a very, very high cost. And the fact of the matter is, we don't want to go to war with China. China doesn't want to go to war with us. Uh, so, you know, I know you've heard my position before on this, but I'm a believer that we need to hold the Chinese accountable on, uh, on the Uyghurs. We need to hold them accountable on Hong Kong. We need to hold them accountable when they violate the WTO. Um, but at the end of the day, we need to find some common ground with the Chinese, find common ground on trade, find it on climate, find a way to build a relationship with the Chinese, because if we don't, we're going to force the Chinese into the arms of the Russians more so than they are now. And this alliance between China and Russia will not be beneficial to anybody in the world. But this is a very important thing you're saying, because it seems to me that uh, there's one issue on which there's bipartisan agreement in Washington, and that is be as hawkish as you can on China. Um, And you worry that this could this could take us down a dangerous path for decades. I I do. Um, And again, I I had an opportunity to to talk to a senior member in the White House uh, several weeks ago who said we're talking more to the Russians than we are to the Chinese. And, And once again, I don't think that's a good path to move down. Uh, you know, right now, uh, when it comes to the military, uh, you know, quantity has a quality all its own. So when we look at the Chinese military, particularly their Navy, they have more ships than the United States has. Um, they're not in a position to really kind of take us on in the Pacific region. Uh, they've got three carrier carriers, and, uh, and frankly, they're having trouble finding pilots to, to man the planes. But sooner or later, they are going to get to the point where their military will, in fact, be as strong as our military in the Asia-Pacific region. We don't want to find ourselves in the South China Sea getting into some sort of conflict that escalates itself. The way you prevent that is you create a dialogue, you make sure that we have some common ground so that when an event like that happens, we're in a position to have a discussion to de-escalate as quickly as possible. You know, one of the areas that worries me a lot is the Chinese are, uh, have, as part of the, this process of kind of bad and worsening relations with the U.S., the Chinese are really ramping up their strategic modernization of their nuclear arsenal. It seems like they're going to triple or quadruple the number of nuclear missiles. So then we end up in a situation where of the three leading nuclear powers in the world, two, Russia and China, are closely allied, and presumably their missiles are pointed at us. Right. Well, this is the one lesson, of course, that although the many lessons that I think China has taken away from Russia's invasion of Ukraine is that the reason we haven't aggressively moved against Russia is the fact that they have a nuclear arsenal. And I think that's a, a good lesson to take away. But unfortunately, as a result of that, they are, as you point out, they're bolstering and, and building up their nuclear arsenal. And, uh, and once again, we've got to find a way to find some common ground. Stay with us. Uh, when we come back, uh, Admiral McRaven has been called many things in his life, but one of the titles he is proudest of is Bullfrog. Find out all about it when we come back. We are back with retired Admiral William McRaven. Among the many titles he's had is Bullfrog. It is an honorific given to the Navy SEAL who has served the longest amount of time on active duty. McRaven was honored with the title in 2011 when he had 34 years of service in the SEALs and took over Special Operations Command. 
This all ought to help you understand the title of his new book, The Wisdom of the Bullfrog, Leadership Made Simple but Not Easy. Um, you know, I've tried to think to myself, why? this is your third book. It's the, the other ones have been number one New York Times bestsellers. What do people find? This, your books are full of wisdom. It's often common sense of good judgment. And I think what I find in them is we live in a meritocratic age where we, we think being smart is everything. You know, that's the, the best thing you can be is super smart and, you know, super credentialed. And a lot of this is about qualities other than intelligence. Well, and, uh, you know, to your point, uh, Fareed, I've, uh, I've, I was never the smartest guy in the room. So it was easy for me to write this book on leadership coming from that point of view. But what I found in the great leaders uh, that I served for, and I was fortunate to serve with, uh, a number of great leaders over my time in the military and, and since then. It's really about the quality of the man or woman you're working, the, the character and the sense of integrity, the sense of trust. Can you trust this leader? Um, and that doesn't mean you have to be the smartest person in the room, but you have to listen to the rank and file. You have to be a servant leader in the sense that, you know, you want to make the team successful. If you think as a leader, that it's all about you, then you're probably not the right person to be the leader. And so what the book does is I've, I've taken about 18 you know, mottos and creeds from, uh, from the military over the last thousand years, and I've used those as guides uh, for people when they're having leadership challenges. So you know, the SEAL motto is the only easy day was yesterday. And the implication there is, look, if you think all your hard days are behind you as a leader, you're mistaken. Every day is going to be hard. So come to work, prepared to bring it, prepared to do the hard work. Uh, the British SAFs have a saying called, uh, who dares wins. And it's about assuming risk, taking risk. It's something I, I think that one I really yeah. liked because I think of people like me who are very credentialed and, you know, we, we often don't take risks because you, you have a kind of easy, you know, I mean, if, you, if you've gone to like some fancy college and some fancy business school, you've got a safe job at, in consulting. You're not probably not going to be the guy taking the risk and becoming right. the entrepreneur, you know. Um, and you, your, your example of that story is the bin Laden raid, which was a very risky thing to do. It was, but the one thing that I bring out in there is it's important to take risk, personal risk, professional risk, but you want it to be calculated risk. You know, the one thing they never show on the movies or talk about in the books is that three quarters of our time as Navy SEALs are spent on a whiteboard doing the planning and the, and the rehearsing. Uh, it doesn't make for a good movie. But if you don't plan the risk out of it, if you don't rehearse the risk out of it, then you're going to fail on the mission. But you've got to be prepared to take those risks. Uh, or, or you're, you're just never going to make that leap in life that, that you need to make to be a great leader or, I think, a great person. In that story, you have, there's another uh, a motto you use, which is a, fa you know, a famous one, no plan survives the contact with right. the enemy. But you point out that that became crucial in the bin Laden raid, that having plan B and plan C. Absolutely. Well, as you know, uh, plan A did not work out so well. I mean, as soon as the first helicopter came in, it lost lift, it careened off into the animal pen, and now the second helicopter landed outside the compound. So all of a sudden, the entire plan that we had built, plan A, uh, had, had gone to hell in a handbasket. Now we had to execute plan B and plan C and plan D. And, but we had planned accordingly. So we were prepared to flex as we needed to in order to accomplish the mission. That was the, you know, three quarters of your time spent on the whiteboard making sure you had a secondary plan. 
Um, the, you know, the, the most important chapters, I wouldn't say the most important, but there's, there's a lot in here about, about character and about integrity. Um, and you uh, took the very bold step of actually criticizing Donald Trump uh, on, on those grounds. Do you worry that we've lost a sense of respect for those values in the country? No, I mean, I think people still value uh, honor and integrity, at least the, the people that I spend time with, I know they do. Uh, and we should expect it from our leaders, uh, whether it's you know, leaders uh, you know, of the president of the United States or whether it's leaders at the, the state or the local level. We should expect our leaders to be men and women of good character. They should be trustworthy. They should listen to the people that they serve. This is what's important in leadership. Uh, and again, the great leaders I've uh, worked for in the past have shown this character. This has been the most important quality of any leader is integrity. Uh, you, you get the, the, the title of the book comes in part from a Clausewitz quote where he says, everything in war is simple, right. but the simple things are difficult. Right. And it seems to me that your book shows, you know, the, the most uncommon thing in the world is common sense. It's common sense. <laughs> it is at that. Admiral McRaven, pleasure to have you. Uh, my pleasure for you. Thanks. Next on GPS, from the big screen to the bottom of the ocean, to the plains of Asia and Africa, I will bring you an extraordinary conversation with a man whose interests encompass all these areas. I will sit down with the world's most successful movie director, James Cameron, for a very special interview when we come back. You know him from his groundbreaking blockbuster films, Titanic, the Terminator, the Avatar series. His movies have won over 20 Oscars and are some of the very highest grossing and most expensive films of all time. But James Cameron is much more than an Academy Award-winning filmmaker. He's also a scientific explorer, engineer, environmentalist, and pioneer of new technologies. His innovations have descended to the bottom of the ocean and soared into space. Cameron's latest documentary series, Secrets of the Elephants, dives into the lives of those majestic and mammoth animals. It will premiere on April 21st on National Geographic. Cameron's commitment to sustainability also inspired a move to New Zealand, where he and his wife live on an organic farm. We sat down recently here in New York. James Cameron, what an honor. It's a huge honor to be on your show, Fareed. Thank you. So if you look at the four highest grossing films in the history of the world, mm -hmm. you've made three of them. Yeah, it turns out that way. <laughs> and what's extraordinary to me is, I mean, each of these has grossed more than $2 billion. Right. But they do it all over the world. They do well everywhere. I was in India when Avatar, the, 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 new, one, one, yeah. the new one came out. And India, as you know, is consumed with Bollywood movies. Hollywood has very small presence. Historically, yeah. Except Avatar was everywhere. Yeah. So my question to you is, what is it that you have found that appeals to so many people? The things that I care about are trying to reach people emotionally. But I also am very visual, right? And, you know, I get a lot of ideas from dreams and things like that. And I think that taps into the subconscious that we all kind of share, if you believe that kind of Jungian uh, view of life. But I also think about that global market. And I think I don't want to do stuff that's just based on kind of current memes and, and current little cultural 
um, you know, kind of ideas and trends. I want to, I want to go back to sort of classic ideas, almost back to Greek tragedy and things like that. Things that affect everybody. So, for example, the new Avatar film is about family, um, and bonds that we all share in any culture, any religion, any language group around the world. Titanic, you know, about love and sacrifice and duty, which are things that, for example, you know, maybe in Asia, you know, mean a lot to people. So even though they had a language barrier to, to surmount to watch the film, it meant something to them, you know. So I try to just tap into universals of human experience. Um, beyond that, uh, I could get very specific about visual effects and things like that. But I think it's that, it's that universe, universal sense of who we are as human beings. You said you think about the, the, the world audience, the global audience. Yes. Do you think it helps that you live in New Zealand? You know, you've got, you're sort of out of America. I think it's interesting to live outside. I lived in, in Los Angeles for 47 years. I, I grew up in Canada before that. Now that I live in New Zealand, I think it's interesting to look back on American culture and society and politics and so on from an outside viewpoint and get a morning paper that sees it in a very different way. I think, uh, I think it's health, healthy, and I, I think more Americans should do that, you know, look into the bubble from the outside. I mean, I think if you think about it in a, in a broader sense, that's how the Avatar movies work. They ask us to see through the eyes of nature, through these blue people, back at ourselves and our sins against nature that we collectively as a civilization are doing. Because I, I think maybe one in a thousand people that goes to an Avatar movie actually roots for the humans. <laughs> you know, but we're a human audience rooting against ourselves, if you think about it in a strange way, through these kind of aspirational characters that really represent the best of us or the way we imagine we can be or maybe the way we used to be thousands of years ago. Yeah. Do, do you think, you know, I think about this because when you look at Asia, which is modernizing and urbanizing so fast, right. they're in many ways despoiling the environment even more. And yet right. the movies do very well in Asia. Yeah. I think we suffer collectively from nature deficit disorder and we all need to reconnect. And I think because we were less urbanized when we were kids, certainly my age and maybe even the next generation behind me, um, we long for that sort of thing we had as children where we were, we were down in the grass, we were down in the soil, we, we collected birds and butterflies, I mean butterflies and flowers and things like that. We don't get that anymore. Our lives are so urbanized. I mean, we're here in New York right now. It's hard to even imagine that, you know, when you just look out at that, that technical landscape. I think we long for it. And so people see something that they, that they want in their, in their dreams. You know, there's, I think there's something that's very kind of uh, primitive about it and primitive in us, atavistic, right? right? That we, that we long for. And I just hope we can reconnect with that because, you know, we're, our urban life is devastating nature in order to support it. How does the subconscious work as best you can tell? Because you were saying you get a lot of your ideas from dreams. Yeah. You're appealing to people in a way that they don't think of themselves, I think, a lot of people as having this nature deficit disorder. I mean, they're much going mm -hmm. around there. Mm -hmm. But somehow, you know, it does feel like you're tapping into that. Right. Well, I do think, I do think we have certain innate programming that's at a very deep level, much lower than higher brain function. And I think our subconscious, when it's operating... Uh, either in the background during the day or at night where it sort of takes over is sort of, it's sort of processing internally in a way that uh, scientists don't really understand dreams and the, the psychological purpose that they serve. I think they're kind of like a generative AI. You know, I think they're making imagery 
from a vast data set that's our entire experience in life. And it's just making imagery. And then another part of our brain is supplying a narrative that goes along with it. And the narrative doesn't always make yeah. much sense, yeah. you know, but we're storytelling to ourselves all night, all night long, or at least during REM sleep, you know. And I'm not a dream expert, I want to say up front or a neuroscientist, but I think this is what's happening. And we're trying to make sense of the world because we don't really remember like a videotape. We remember stories right. like strings of beads. You know, I went to a party. Okay, I remember where it was. That's a bead. But you don't, you can't play back a whole tape of the whole thing. I'll remember this as an image, a picture of you, and some of the topics that we talked about. But I won't be able to play it back like a videotape. And if I do play back, you know, a recording of it, I'll go, oh, yeah, we said that. That was cool. Or, or not. Or I embarrassed myself. I wish I could take it back. <laughs> so, so Billy Joel said to me that he gets a lot of his, his music f uh, from, from dreams. Mm, and that you know, he'd, he'd get up in, or even later on he'd realize and it's always the, the core, which was for him always the melody, the harmony, not the words. The yeah. words were a later add-on. Interesting. What do you, explain how your dreams work. It sounds to me like for him it's musical. For me it's images images and um you know so so just a bunch of random sometimes very surreal images sometimes beautiful sometimes terrifying and i and i i've lately been thinking that there's a little bit of it's not just the picture there's a little metadata running underneath it that's telling me what the picture means you know so for example the terminator was based on a single image of a chrome skeleton emerging out of fire but the metadata said it used to look like a man covered in flesh and the fire burned it away and so it's, yeah, a, it's actually yeah. a story segment. And then you start putting those story segments together and then it starts to turn into a story you want to tell to other people. And I think storytellers sitting around the campfire in a, in a cave 50,000 years ago were doing the same thing. And so when you get those images, do you say to yourself, you know, I, first of all, just mechanically, do you write it down? Do you, do write you do? it down sometimes or actually draw it. Right. What I, you know, I remember the... You have a background as an artist, As an as artist, an artist right? as a figurative yeah. artist. Yeah, exactly. Representational. Um, you know, illustrator, I guess, would be a better, a better term. But yeah, I used to love to draw and paint and that's right. I, I still do, but not as much because now in my, my current level of work in film, the film is my painting. The film is my art. And I get to work with the very best you know, illustrators and design artists in the world. Um, so I don't do it as much as I, I used to. I work through them, and they're better than I ever was, so it's okay. But movies are a, a strange kind of art because it's partly an art, but partly there's a lot of technology. I mean, look, yeah, at right, the, if you right. could see, there's just so many cameras around yeah. us and lights and yeah. sound. And, and, and computers. You, and and yep. you, you yep. really embrace the scientific part of all that. Yeah, I love the, I love the tech. I love the engineering. My, my mother was an artist and my father was an engineer. And so, you know, it's, so it's, you've ge really it's genetics writ yeah, large, yeah, yeah. you know. Uh, I love the tech and I love creating new tech, you know. And I was at the, I was at the, the, the advancing wavefront of CG as it started to sweep through. And this was going back 30 years now. But, you know, the Abyss was the first CG character that was a soft surface character. We, we had this kind of water tentacle that formed faces. Um, and then that went on to the liquid metal guy in Terminator 2. And from there, it progressed to other things. Jurassic Park, which I didn't do. Steven Spielberg did it. But then, you know, it, it built very rapidly. We could see the future was coming, that it would be, it would be CG. So I like the tech side. But it's not, the irony is not lost on me that we use 
literally petabytes of storage and all these computer monitors and everything to make a movie about the most naturalistic state of the human experience, yeah. you know, and albeit they're blue aliens, but we're really celebrating that kind of indigenous wisdom keeper kind of kind of idea using all this technology. And, and, and loving you, it. <laughs> we will be back with more of my interview with James Cameron. Stay with us. We are back with the Academy Award-winning filmmaker, explorer, and inventor, James Cameron. Let's talk a little bit more about technology and engineering, because, I mean, after you made the first Avatar film, the obvious thing, given what a huge hit it was, was make a sequel. And no, you made no. a submarine. I made a <laughs> you submarine, made, yeah. you, you know, and, you, and it took years for you to do that. Yeah, I was actually it, doing it in the background of finishing Avatar. It was a seven-year project to build the sub, and it, it, it overhung the delivery of Avatar by another couple of years. So that film came into the marketplace 2009-10, and by 2012 we had a finished sub that we were out diving in the deep trenches in Papua New Guinea and then ultimately the, the Challenger Deep. So it's, a, so it, it's almost... One way to think about you is as a, a you know a kind of explorer, technologist, inventor, who's I mean that seems to be motivating you a lot, and then yeah, and yeah. then you, you become a movie maker. Yeah, kind of. That's true. Well, I think a key aspect of exploration is coming back and telling the story. You know, I think that the best explorers are also good storytellers and and good recorders of of the image. Shackleton took big eight by ten camera with him, and some of those plates are are so famous and, and um, iconic that they schlepped with them against all odds. Right. And if you know the Shackles yeah, story, I'm yeah, sure you yeah, do. Yeah. What incredible odds that they fought to get back, but they brought back the pictures, yeah. you know. And the pictures coming back from the moon that the, the first Apollo landing you know, crew brought back are so important and so iconic for us. So, yeah, it, it's not a big stretch for me from filmmaking to exploration. I just shift my filmmaking to documentary mode. You know, and I found documentaries to be pretty challenging. You know, you spend a lot of time in the editing room on a documentary. Why? Um, because there's no script, you know, and it, with ocean exploration, the ocean didn't get your script. So it doesn't exactly show up at 9 a.m. to do what you want it to do. And so you get a lot of random footage and you never know quite if you've got a story or not until you get into the cutting room. And then it emerges and it might take a year or more to cut a good documentary. Tell me about uh, being vegan. Mm -hmm. um, and how it relates to your your um, admiration for nature. Well, look, nature is threatened by a lot of different things simultaneously. And it, here's a really interesting thing. So if you think of it like a Venn diagram and you've got deforestation here, uh, loss of habitat, biodiversity loss, um, you know, uh, carbon, carbon in the, in the ocean that's, that's causing the reefs to degrade and in the atmosphere that's causing climate change. The center of that Venn diagram that connects all of those things and is common to all of them is animal agriculture because, you know, water pollution and all these things. So I, I, I knew that years ago and I thought, well, too bad. We have to eat, we have to eat meat to be healthy, right? And then I, I saw a film called Forks Over Knives, which dispelled that myth. And then that took me to the China study. And I read that very, very thick, dense yeah, book, lots yeah. of graphs and things like that, a lot of double blind studies. And really drilling down on the data, I realized that that film was right. We don't need animal protein. Uh, in fact, it's, it's very deleterious for our health. But I was approaching it from a sustainability standpoint. And I thought, wow, one elegant solution. 
we just stopped. So, so my wife and I talked to Susie, Susie and I, and we just, we just went, I, I hate to use the word vegan because I think it's off-putting. People think it's kind of a hippie new age kind of, kind of thing as opposed to a whole food plant-based diet, which requires no animal, whatever, anything, cheese, milk, meat, fish, any of that. And I've been on that for 11 years. So I just wanted to be like a guinea pig in an experiment and see for myself. Same thing as exploration. I want to go to the bottom of the ocean and see for myself. You could do anything uh, you want, but you want to make more Avatar movies. What, what, it, what is it? Is it that, you know, this is part of a continuing uh, project? It's an ongoing project, and I decided to make it a kind of an epic project because I like big challenges, and I'm written out through the end of Avatar 5. We're shot, we're finished uh, shooting through the end of Avatar 3, actually a bit into into 4. So this is a big kind of epic cycle that I feel I have to complete. I also looked at it long and hard. Like you said, I didn't go right to shooting the sequel. I took time out. I did a sub. I did some other things. I did a lot of work with indigenous uh, communities around the world because they had responded to the messaging in, in Avatar and drew me into their, to their world. And I thought, okay, I can do some good here. And I started to realize, I think I can do more good with another another Avatar movie than getting caught in a thousand small local battles where I'm not an expert. You know, there were people already on the ground. So I formed a foundation called the Avatar Alliance Foundation to fund some of these NGOs to fight these battles. And then I started to leapfrog ahead to do some more Avatar films because I figured I just need to keep, keep on with that messaging about how we need to connect with each other, how we need to reconnect with nature, how we need to defend her you know, I, I, I think of it in the story as a kind of a female deity because we all have a mother and we understand that we're dependent on that mother. So it's a natural, and, and that natural symbology comes out of so many different indigenous sources as well. That's a, a wonderful way to very elegantly and simply summarize, it seems to me, your life's message, which is we need to connect with each other yeah. and connect with nature. Exactly. Our empathy will save us, you know, but empathy is a double-edged sword because typically we cast the circle of empathy too close. And that creates an in-group that we fight for and an out-group that we fight against. You know, so we need to expand that spotlight of empathy to the people that are just like us around the world, especially the ones that are suffering because of climate change and some of the other degradations. Well, we can do it. You know, movies can help. You know, um, education can help. You know, and just our own will to survive can help. But for you, the, the battle isn't finished until we've extended that empathy to the whole world. Exactly. We need to think of ourselves as the indigenous people of planet Earth, and we're all part of the same tribe. You know, they have a, they have a saying in New Zealand, which is the, the team of five million. And so when the, when the virus hit, the team of five million worked together, and they wound up with a vaccination rate of about, I think, 96 or 97 percent, as opposed to, and you know better than I, somewhere around 66 percent in the, in the U.S., so that, that team spirit, you know, and you can extend, they extended their empathy bubble out to 5 million people in a whole country. Um, and that doesn't happen here. And it doesn't happen in a, lot, in a lot of countries, but it happens there. So now the question is, can we push it another couple of orders of magnitude <laughs> farther out, you know, and see, our, see our, our commonality everywhere? James Cameron, pleasure to have you on. Well, that went fast and it was great. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks to all of you for being part of my program this week. I will see you next week. Don't forget, if you miss a show, go to cnn.com slash Fareed for a link to my iTunes podcast. 
I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.